The reason that helicopter industry will not put out exactly when you should or should not use the helicopter is that helicopter utilization guidelines vary so much according to the capabilities and the needs of the provider that's on the ground. Enchanted Sky Media. Media. This is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast. Now, here's your host, Scott Orr. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thanks for joining me again here on Code 3. This is the show for and about firefighters. We're informing and entertaining members of the fire service just like you from coast to coast. When do you request a medical helicopter to a scene? Most captains and battalion chiefs will err on the side of caution and at least put the aircraft on standby. But how do you determine whether to launch it? Again, many officers will err on the side of caution and will err the patients who probably could have gone by ground ambulance. My guests today have some tips for deciding when to fly a patient. Corey Mosier is the Operations Division Chief at the Prescott, Arizona Fire Department. Thanks for being on Code 3 again, Corey. My pleasure. I'm happy you invited me. Thank you. And also on the line is Joseph Uridil. He's the clinical base supervisor for Native Air 4 in Prescott, which is operated by Air Methods. Welcome to Code 3, Joseph. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. And we'll start with you. Given that aircraft are a limited resource, we don't want to tie them up unnecessarily. So when a patient is on the borderline between flying and ground transport, what are the factors that should determine which it'll be? If you boil down the reasons to utilize an aircraft, those guidelines that are specific to each department, they should be attempting to identify patients for which there is a clinical benefit for the patient to utilize a helicopter. Both of those, those that clinical benefit usually revolves around um, manipulating time, but also there, there's a component of expertise. The short answer is if there is a clinical benefit that, that you can manipulate some time to minimize the amount of time that it takes for a patient to get time-sensitive medical condition treated, that's where you should use it. Corey, in this market, we do have a level four trauma center, actually a couple of them. So then the question is, when do you decide that they can go by ground to those or when do they need to fly? How do you make that decision? Well, in 2012, the CDC put out something called a field triage guideline, and it's something that's been adopted by um, our local uh, hospital, Yavapai Regional Medical Center. In that field triage, it helps us classify patients um, into categories as to whether or not uh, we feel that they need a level one uh, trauma center. It's kind of a flow chart. It is a flow chart <laughs> that our paramedics can use. 
and most of them have it memorized. And what it does is it helps us go through certain signs and symptoms that would indicate to us that the person's facing a life-threatening condition. So it's broken up into four steps. The first step is looking for obvious signs that the person is in serious uh, danger of losing their life. One of those is something called a Glasgow Coma Scale. For a long time, uh, we were told that if anybody didn't have a perfect score on the Glasgow Coma Scale, that they probably needed to be flown to a level one facility. And it created some difficulties because we would have instances where intoxicated people would fall down and hit their head. And we didn't know if that person was suffering from a head injury or if they were suffering from their intoxication. And so a lot of times those people would end up on a helicopter going to a level one facility when, in fact, the only thing that was wrong with them was that they were intoxicated. Do you believe some departments fly more patients than they absolutely need to? That is a good question. It seems like that was the concern a number of years ago, you know, because even though the air ambulance companies are very good at working with their patients, nonetheless, there's still a pretty substantial cost that's incurred. And so I don't know if I would say that we were flying more than we needed to. I think it's probably more of making sure that when we fly somebody, we have a good reason to do so. Uh, not just because of the cost associated with it, but also because of the fact that it's a very valuable resource that we're using. And so if we assign that resource to somebody that truly doesn't need it, uh, we might have someone else that's waiting for an air ambulance as a result uh, who really does need uh, that flight uh, capability down to a, another facility. We have a motor vehicle accident with an extended extrication does the amount of time it's going to take to get that person out of the wreckage figure in whether they should be flown? I mean, in other words, are they going to deteriorate during that time? Yes. So while we're extricating somebody, obviously we're keeping a close eye on their condition. And so the length of time for extricating a person isn't actually a factor on the field triage guidelines, but there are other things then in that situation that would indicate to us that the person might need to be flown. So say that it's an extended extrication, and during that time the person's mentation decreases to a GCS of 13 or less, or we see their respiratory rate increase to over 30. Even though it's taking us a long time and that's not the, the key indicator that tells us we need to fly the person, the patient's condition lets us know that they're going to need to be flown as soon as they get out. And there are some other things, too. In step number three, um, there's a category called a high-risk auto crash. And what that has to do, again, it's not with the length of time to uh, extricate the person, but we're looking at how far into the vehicle there was intrusion, so more, greater than 12 inches into the vehicle at the impact site where the, the patient is sitting or um, where they ejected, things of that nature would indicate to us that there's a good chance they need to go to a level one facility. I'll be back with more right after this. On any given day, you are tasked to be your best and power through the worst of times, all at a moment's notice. We know the sacrifices you make each and every day. Your success relies on superior equipment, 
and the best training available. That's why Federal Resources is here to support you, the everyday hero. We are here so you can excel. Discover your success at federalresources.com. Joseph, it sounds like what you're going to say is there is no cut and dried answer. It's always going to be a judgment call. It is always going to be a judgment call. And and the reason that uh, helicopter industry will not traditionally put out exactly when you should or should not use the helicopter is that helicopter utilization guidelines vary so much according to the capabilities and the needs of the provider that's on the ground. Our helicopter, for example, in Prescott, you know, we respond to uh, basic life support services. We we respond to advanced life support services that like Prescott Fire. And there is a lot of variability in between where a patient could potentially benefit from having a helicopter there. How long does it take to launch if we put the aircraft on standby, and what if we don't put it on standby? We have a goal of, from time of call to skids up, of about eight minutes. That shortens if we are on standby and we are sitting there at the aircraft waiting for a call to respond down to uh, about two minutes. Standby means exactly what? Well, there are multiple types of standbys, again, revolving around manipulating time. So a in the general sense, if somebody asks about a standby or wants to know if we um, will accept a flight, that means multiple things happen. First thing that happens is the crew accepts the flight, and they have to do that in a vacuum where the type of request is separated from the crew having to evaluate the risk of the call according to weather. The crew is not giving information about the patient because we want them to judge the flight based on its own safety, not the urgency of it. Exactly, exactly. We we don't want the flight crews pushing weather in order to respond to a call for service as providers and our goal to provide health care to people, we have to separate that from um, the medical decision-making, from the aviation determination of safety, and the entire crew is responsible for both. And that is a component of our safety management system. Once that occurs, that and the crew accept the flight, they receive information about the call, they respond to the aircraft, and they sit there and wait. And they are dedicated to that call until they were are released by the requester and then they respond as soon as they're asked there is also an in-air standby and what our helicopters and our crews can do is they can independently launch once there is a valid request to narrow the time between 
when the call is requested and when we actually land on the scene before they even accept it. So uh, if you have questionable weather, for example, uh, the sooner that you initiate that process, the better. Do your air crews ever turn down a transport? Now here I'm thinking of an example of a patient who codes after the helicopter's in the air. Would they, for example, turn back at that point? Yes, we would. And in fact, we it's not quite a refusal to transport the patient. It is making decisions for the best interest of the patient's care. If we are... If, if the patient does not have a pulse, putting that patient in a helicopter where a crew of two clinicians are available to not be able to adequately do CPR, that is not the best decision for the patient. So we, we always try to make those decisions based on what's the needs of the patient. So if the patient has a pulse, we will, we will typically fly that patient. Patient. If they do not, the flight crew often what they will do is they will stay with the ground ambulance where they can either provide the best care on scene or transport the patient to the nearest hospital via ground where they can implement the best care for that patient in the ambulance. Do your pilots ever get to a scene only to find they don't like the chosen LZ and what happens in that case? That happens all the time. Um, there is, and in fact, I I will give some kudos to our pilots. Our our pilots are are the best in the business. Um, and you know, typically, pilots will not fly off of an airport, which ours do. Ours are landing on highways in the forest. Um, and it happens all the time where the perspective of the incident commander on the ground or the battalion chief will will determine a uh, landing zone that they would prefer, but there are other factors that uh, from the air look differently. Um, and it happens all the time where uh, we will initiate radio contact with a ground contact. They'll have an, a landing zone picked out, and uh, we will determine that it's not the safest one, but we can find another one a mile away. It, it's a very collaborative thing to make sure that we are choosing a safe spot to put that helicopter down. All right, Joseph, you're a deal. Thanks for your insights today. Thank you. And Corey Mosier, thanks for talking with us today on Code 3. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. It's always a pleasure. And there's more information on airlift decision-making on our website at code3podcast.com slash chopper. Check it out. Here comes your trivia question. When was the first non-military trauma patient transport by air in the U.S., and who made it? I'll have the answer right after this. Now's your chance to get your hands on Code 3 t-shirts, sweatshirts, and more. Show your support for the podcast that supports firefighters from coast to coast. Just go to Code3Podcast.com and click on the Code 3 store link. Or go to Code3Podcast.com slash shop and tell the world that you're a Code 3 fan. And those t-shirts and sweatshirts now come in color, so don't miss them. Here's the trivia answer. The Maryland State Police Aviation Program in March 
1970 became the first civilian agency to transport a critically injured trauma patient by helicopter. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll be here. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, I'll see you later. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To get in contact with us, visit Code3Podcast.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, you should. Don't miss an episode. Find us at the Apple iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.